Well, good morning. It's uh, great to see the fall leaves on the video screen. Also good to see some leaves still on the trees. That's always encouraging. It means that fall has been extended a bit. If um, you are here for the first time, know that you are very welcome. We are so happy that you have joined us today and we would really be pleased if you would fill out a welcome card. There's a welcome card in the seat in front of you. You can write down your name, email, phone number, and uh, we'll send you some resources so that you can uh, walk with us here at Willingdon. We are following Jesus, and we would love to connect with you. If you turn that card over, it's a prayer request card, and you can write down your prayer request, and there'll be a team praying for you throughout the week. Please uh, just leave that card at the info desk as you leave the service. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. The uh, title for this series is Living in the Real World. We're exploring what it means to be disciples of Jesus in the real world. And I would love to just begin with a case that is before the Supreme Court of Canada right now. Uh, Trinity Western University has been asking for accreditation in all provinces for future graduates of its proposed law school. But it has faced pushback from law societies in Ontario, British Columbia, and Nova Scotia. It's received pushback because of its community covenant agreement, the covenant that Trinity asks students and faculty and staff to sign. The Supreme Court of Canada will hear arguments in its case on November 30th and December 1st, so just in a few weeks. And I'd like to read an excerpt from the President's letter dated November the 9th. I quote, The Law Society of Upper Canada, Ontario, now says that it must reject Trinity Western not just because of Trinity's position on marriage, but also because of our distinctly Christian environment. In its written argument filed with the Supreme Court of Canada, the Law Society Society highlighted every part of the community covenant it found discriminatory. The first two highlighted words were Jesus Christ. I recognize that not everyone in our Trinity Western community agrees with the way marriage is defined in the community covenant. I have welcomed conversations on this matter, and I hope they will continue. But I also know from my own experience that each one of you desires Trinity to continue to be a community whose life together is characterized by a firm commitment to Jesus Christ, as it has always been. It is that common commitment that is under attack. So... A question, how should Trinity Westerns uh, respond? Their proposed law school is in jeopardy because they are distinctly Christian. Freedom of conscience in Canada is at stake. Should they threaten? Should they compromise in some way? Should they retaliate? How should they respond? First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 21. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In verse 21, Peter writes, For to this you have been called. When he writes to this, what is he referring to? Well, in the context, he is talking about honoring everyone. We are to do good even to those that dishonor God. Even when they malign us. We are to be subject to human institutions, even to unjust political rulers. We are to be subject to those in authority over us, even those that are harsh and cruel. You might say, well, but wait a minute. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, I received forgiveness of sins. I received the gift of eternal life. I did not sign up for unjust suffering. What has God called us to? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Father drew us to himself by the Spirit. We repented of our sin. We turned to Jesus. We surrendered to Jesus. We received him as Savior and Lord. And we were born to a living hope. So God has called us out of darkness. He has also called us to be slaves of God. As slaves of God, when we submit to the authorities over us, when we endure unjust suffering patiently, Peter says this is actually evidence of God's grace. This is a sign that the Spirit of God indwells you. Those around us, as they observe us, they have the opportunity to see God in our lives. And we remember that we have been honored by God, that we are now sons and daughters of the Father, that our identity, that our belonging is secure in God himself. And we're called to one more thing. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So he has called us to eternal glory in Jesus. What kind of suffering is Peter referring to? Well, he's not referring to suffering such as aging, illness, death. He's not speaking of suffering that we bring upon ourselves, suffering due to our own sin or our own poor judgment. He is talking about unjust suffering in this passage. Why have we been called to this? Well, back to verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The Jesus that we follow, his suffering was undeserved. It was unprovoked. But he left an example for us to follow in the desert of life. As we follow Jesus, we walk in his footprints through the desert sands. We move in the direction that he is going. The word example here. It was used for the pattern of the letters of the alphabet over which children would trace. Karen Jobes, a commentator on this text, writes, English words such as example, model, or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write the large, write large the letters of his gospel in their life. Jesus sets the paradigm. Jesus is the pattern we follow. He is the paradigm that we live by. He is the way of looking at life. He is the framework for our lives. A right understanding of Jesus will always lead us to follow in his footprints. 
What does Jesus call us to? On one occasion, Peter, or sorry, Jesus says to Peter and the disciples that he is going to the cross. Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that, and Jesus responds by saying this, Mark chapter 8, verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Years later, Peter now writes this letter. And he understands his most basic calling. To deny himself, to take up his cross, and to follow Jesus. Jesus set the paradigm for how he should live. Jesus sets the pattern for uh, disciples in the first century. He sets the paradigm, the pattern for us in the 21st. He's the model for a true truly dignified, significant, free life in the midst of a very complex and unjust world. His footsteps lead to the cross, through the grave, and onward to glory. What were those footsteps of Jesus? Let's look again at verses 22 to 25 and notice where the language comes from. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That comes right out of Isaiah 53 verse 9. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, verse 7. When he suffered, he did not threaten, again, verse 7. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges unjustly, verses 6 and 8. He himself bore our sins, verse 4, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, verse 5, for you were straying like sheep, verse 6, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus is very clearly the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. This understanding of Jesus emerged very early in the life of the church. No other author in the New Testament so explicitly, so extensively speaks to Jesus as, speaks of Jesus as the suffering servant in Isaiah. In chapter 1, Peter has already explained that the, the spirit of Christ was at work in Isaiah and the other prophets, speaking to them about the sufferings of Jesus and his future glory. You know, this was God's grace to the early church. The early church really struggled with the fact that their Lord, their Savior, their Messiah, had died a criminal's death, brutally shamed on a cross. Jesus died the death that a slave would die, that a criminal would die. Why had their Savior died on a cross? Why had he undergone the brutal shaming before Roman and Jewish authorities? And so as they read Isaiah 53, this text that was written 700 years before Jesus was born, they were comforted because everything that happened to Jesus had been prophesied in minute detail. In verses 22 to 25, Peter interweaves elements of Christ's passion with the language of Isaiah. He's using the language of Isaiah 53, but he's following the sequence of events of Christ's passion. Again, what were Jesus' steps? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The second phrase is is a restatement of the first. Jesus, when he suffered, he did not sin by lying, by deception. 
When reviled, he did not revile in return. That word revile means to to use abusive language. So when the abuse was heaped up on Jesus over and over again, when he was slandered by the Jewish council, when he was ridiculed by Roman authorities, when the, the, the criminal crucified behind him despised him, he did not respond with abusive language. Verse 23, when he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not threaten divine judgment on those that were causing him to suffer. Interesting, again, that Peter emphasizes the verbal aspect of his behavior. So the ones that Peter is writing to, they are suffering from unjust criticism. They're on the receiving end of abusive speech. And when we are treated unjustly, it is so easy to stretch the truth, to put our opponents in a bad light, to respond in kind. We speak abusively, we retaliate, make threats. We can so easily justify our bad behavior because we've been mistreated. Jesus follows his own teaching in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. This is what he says to his disciples. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So let's go back to that Trinity Western case. And I'll quote again from the president's letter. The law society's current legal position is out of step with with our fundamental freedoms set out in the Canadian Charter of Rights. It is also out of step with international law. A coalition of international law professors from 20 countries filed a factum in Trinity's support. I am encouraged that the editorial boards of both the Globe and Mail and the National Post have supported Trinity Western's right to operate a law school. There will be numerous opportunities for prayer. I continue to quote his letter. There will be numerous opportunities for prayer over the next few weeks leading up to the hearings. We have been encouraging a national day of prayer, November 26th. I believe that God has much in store for us yet. Placed directly in my line of sight under my computer screen are the words of Christ found in John 16, verse 33. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So the president writes, this is not a time to be discouraged. This is a time to come boldly before the throne of God with our prayers for peace that only he can give as we submit to him. In his service, Bob Kuhn. So we do not fear. God is the only one to be feared. We honor everyone. We bless society with the perspective of Jesus, with the pattern of Jesus, the paradigm of Jesus. We do not use deceit. We do not revile, we do not threaten, we present our case to God and before legal authorities, and we pray. Amen? In my conversation with Bob Kuhn earlier this week, I committed Willingdon to pray. Will you pray? Pray for Trinity Western, pray for this nation. Is this enough, some would ask? Shouldn't we use everything in our power to secure our rights? Doesn't the end justify the means? It's interesting as we read the Gospels, as we read the letters of Paul, Peter, the primary focus of Jesus is not on changing the ways of the world. Jesus' primary goal is not the transformation of society. His primary goal is the transformation of his disciples. 
Jesus desires that we be transformed into his likeness, no matter what our station is in life, that we be evidence of God's grace on earth. And you might ask, well, but is that effective enough? Will that change anything? Listen to Miroslav Volf. The call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. So as disciples of Jesus live what they are called to live within the unjust social structures of our world, they subvert the status quo and they open up a whole new way of thinking. They break with the world's ways. They follow in the footprints of Jesus and they bring unbelievers to praise God themselves. That's what Peter writes in this chapter. So we've talked about what Jesus didn't do. He did not threaten. He did not revile. He did not use deceit. What did he do? Verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Entrust means to give oneself over. It means to commit oneself. He entrusted every dimension of his life to the Father. He trusted his father to triumph over evil, to work justice. It was not just this passive resignation to evil. He was confident that his father would triumph and would work justice. So can we as followers of Jesus do the same? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So as disciples of Jesus, we are called to walk in the footprints of Jesus. We are called to forgive and entrust all judgment to God, even when society questions whether a life of faith in Jesus is good. God will vindicate his servants. Every wrong deed committed will either be covered by the blood of Christ or repaid justly by God at the final judgment. Here's another current example. I referred to this story about six months ago, but I come back to it because there are recent updates. On November 30th, 1984, 13-year-old Candace Dirksen vanished on her way home from school. Nearly seven weeks later, her bound and frozen body was discovered in an abandoned shed. The case remained cold until an arrest was finally made in 2007. The accused was arrested following DNA testing that the crown linked to the twine the hairs found on Candace's body. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison without parole. That conviction, however, was overturned. 32 years after their daughter's death, Cliff and Wilma, they found themselves in the courtroom again, reliving all of the events of 1984. Through all those years, they had lived determined that the tragedy would not determine how they would live. They would find another way. Wilma Dirksen has written, 
Only forgiveness, I'm quoting her, only forgiveness held the promise of delivering us from the abyss of depression and trauma. It was only in Christ that I found the courage and the faith to begin the journey of forgiveness. When people are reaching out their hand to God to get on the path of forgiveness, even if they don't feel they have the ability, they're inviting a supernatural love, God's love, to come into them and it helps them move forward. As long as they stay in that mode, eventually they will find themselves forgiving. They follow in the footprints of Jesus. When I told this story, I also referred to Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell is a famous author, author of books like Tipping Point, Blink, David and Goliath. Some years ago, he was writing a story about two parents that had lost their daughters through violent crime. One story set in California, the other in Manitoba. He went to California first. The parent in California was determined to avenge his daughter's death by making every criminal pay a harsher sentence. And so he campaigned to change state laws in California, and they were changed. By the end of the century, there were seven times more people in prison in California than all of Western Europe. But even though more people were behind bars, it had had no discernible impact on the crime rate in California. The man that Gladwell was interviewing, he was livid, he was bitter, he was determined. Absolutely no hint of peace, no hint of reconciliation. And Gladwell writes that he left that conversation broken, shaken. Shortly thereafter, he flew to Manitoba to talk to Wilma Dirksen. And Gladwell says that he came to faith in Wilma's kitchen, listening to her story of forgiveness. Just a few weeks ago, in October, Cliff and Wilma found themselves in a Winnipeg courthouse again. The lawyer of the accused had made an appeal. He had argued that the DNA samples had deteriorated deteriorated in the time between Candace's death And the first trial, and the man that had been accused, was set free. As Cliff and Wilma left the courthouse, the media encroached upon them. There were many cameras. And this was the question that was asked. What would you like to have happen to the man who killed your daughter? And they responded, and I quote, It's been 33 years And this just means it's over for us. Human justice does not equal God's justice. We pray that the man comes to experience the forgiveness of Jesus. And the National Post has this wonderful photo of Cliff and Wilma leaving the courthouse and they are smiling broadly. And of course we ask, how? (laughs) After that verdict... Well, because God has done a miracle of grace in their lives. Cliff and Wilma, they continue to do good. There's a rescue center for victims of crime just a short walk from the Winnipeg courthouse. It bears Candace Dirksen's name. Some people see the good doing being done and they are encouraged to be faithful to Jesus. Others observe what is happening in Cliff and Wilma's lives and they give their hearts to Jesus like Malcolm Gladwell. Others observe and they just continue to practice injustice. 
We will never see justice completely done while we are on earth. But like Cliff and Wilma, we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. I just want to open our parenthesis here. Sometimes we ask this kind of question. You know, we're following Jesus. We, we're trying to do good. We attend church. We even give. And then bad things happen to us. And we ask, God, why are bad things happening to me? In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for people to believe that if you suffered misfortune, it meant that the gods had turned against you. They were frowning on you. They were abandoning you. What's the gospel message? Jesus' unjust suffering did not mean that God had abandoned him. Rather, his suffering was God's miraculous, mysterious, marvelous way of accomplishing his purposes, the redemption of humanity. Likewise, Peter is saying that when we suffer unjustly as disciples of Jesus, it does not mean that God has abandoned us. It does not mean that the gospel is untrue. It just means that we, like Jesus, have been chosen by God for his purposes, and this suffering is an opportunity for God to be glorified. We're called to walk in his footsteps. Jesus is our paradigm. And then we look, when we look at this text, we see that Jesus did something that only he could do. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is a clear reference to Jesus' death by crucifixion. He bore our sins. Peter's using sacrificial language. He's signaling that he's talking about something very, very important. Jesus died in our place to remove our sins. His death, it was sin-bearing. It was unique. It was substitutionary. Only Jesus could bear the sins of humanity. He, the Son of God, was sinless. Only through his death could the wrath of God towards sin be appeased. Only through his death could our sins be forgiven. There was no other way. So Jesus is the payment for all our sins. Jesus is the payment for all our sins. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he submit to the shaming? Verse 24, Peter continues, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin, it mean, die to it means get away from, depart from. So Jesus gave his life so that we might get away from the sin that will destroy us. Get away from what kind of sin, you might ask? Well, Jesus bore every sin in his body on the tree. Our independence of God, our unbelief, our pride, our self-centeredness, our tendency to live selfishly for ourselves, our tendency to objectify other human beings, to use them, to exploit them, to take advantage of them, our sinful thoughts, our envy, our jealousy, our bitterness, our warped paradigm that's based on wealth and power and status, what we yearn for, even though Jesus says that life is not there. Jesus Jesus took every sin upon himself and paid the price for it so that we might be empowered to live to righteousness. Be reborn to a living hope by the living word. When we come to Jesus, we come to the Father and we receive the Holy Spirit. The power of sin in our lives is broken. We are set free. We're enabled to follow in his footsteps. And the more we follow Jesus, 
the less attractive the world's ways become. The more we follow Jesus, the less, or rather, the more repulsive the word inspired by the devil becomes. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we want to be like him. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we want to be with him, the more we want to hear him. So what's the outcome of our rebirth? Verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says, before you met Jesus, you were wandering away constantly. You were lost in the desert. You had no idea where you were going, what you were doing, but now you know him. Now you know his voice. Follow in his footprints. Now he is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What does that mean? Well, Jesus knows you by name. He leads you through life. In the deserts of life, his teaching provides living water. In the vulnerable moments, he protects, he guards, he sustains you. He sovereignly oversees your life. You are never alone. He is always with you. You live under the goodness of his power and authority. What freedom and what kind of healing is Peter talking about here? Well, he's talking about the healing of fatal spiritual wounds. In Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We have been bought back by God himself. We were spiritually dead, and now we're alive because of Jesus. In Jesus, we're born to a living hope. Our relationship with God is restored. We belong to him. We long to be with him. And this healing of our relationship with God, it leads to the healing of our souls, of our emotions, our brokenness, heals our thought life. We begin to see clearly whole new paradigm, whole new way of looking at life, a whole new way of understanding God and who we are. By his wounds, we are healed when Jesus is the pastor of our souls. So Jesus, Jesus is the pattern we live by. He's the paradigm. He's the one who paid for all our sin. And he's present as the pastor of our souls. We were singing early, earlier, take me back. So maybe you have strayed. Maybe you've been distracted. And the Lord is saying to you this morning, come back. I have healing for you. Maybe you have never surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you are here under the weight of wrongdoing, of shame, of guilt, You're confused. Again, the voice of Jesus to you is, come to me. I have life for you. Surrender to me. There is no other way. I gave my life for you. I took all of your sin upon myself 2,000 years ago. And I'm present to offer you forgiveness and eternal life. Maybe you need emotional healing. Maybe you've been mistreated. You've been abused. You've been treated unjustly. Well, Jesus, he cares for what is most fragile within us. By his wounds, you have been healed. He comes with healing. Jesus can speak to our wounds like no one else. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. Sometimes we're so broken, we are so embittered, we are so stuck, we don't know how to pray. 
God has gifted us with his family. Sometimes we need to have people pray with us, to lead us in prayer. We're going to go to a time of prayer here. The prayer team will come forward. Pastor Ron will come and lead us in worship. We have time. We have time to linger in God's presence and pray. You can come to the front for prayer. You can pray with each other where you are. Come as you are. You can stand. Please stand. Jesus is present to heal. Amen.